Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Now hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 8, verses 1 to 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early in the morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And, all the, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Maathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand, and Pideah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it, and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They also read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the word of the Lord. In uh, a couple years ago, back in 2020, um, my family and I, we moved. We were in Rock Island for about five years. We moved just down the street off 16th Street here into a nice old brick home that would have enough room for all four of our rambunctious children. Um, and as we got settled, we moved in. Um, what tends to happen, if you've moved recently or any time, you kind of know this, is sort of the project list sort of starts to compile. You start dreaming about, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to take out this wall. We're going to renovate this room. We're going to paint here. We're going to put in new fixtures, right? And so we had this running project list of, of things that we wanted to see done in the house. And, and it wasn't long after we moved where we got started um, with each project. And seemed as soon as we would finish one project, you go right into the next one, right? Because the list is long and... Well, time is of the essence. And what we see today in Nehemiah is, is kind of a similar thing, a similar trend, where there seems to be project stacking like this, done with one, on to the next. Um, and, and what we see here is um, how Nehemiah and his contemporaries avoid complacency of a false finish line. Um, 
Nehemiah was sent back to build this giant wall, 40 feet tall, two and a half miles long, just massive undertaking. And uh, as they got that done, major accomplishment, 52 days, um, it could have been easy for them to just say, hey, that's it. We, we, did, we did the task, hang up our hats, we're all done, um, and that's it. But they didn't. They, they avoided the, false, the, the complacency of a false finish line because they realized that there was more for them to do. Now, one of the things that as we've, we've been in this space um, for about five years in this building, which was an incredible grace to us, um, to, to go from setting up and tearing down every Sunday in a stinky gym, and it was great, it was exciting in the church plant stages, but we were so glad to have a space, a permanent space in the city. Um, but a lot of times what happens when you come to a building like this, um, you land a church plant, kind of solidifies itself in a permanent space, it feels like you've reached the finish line. It's like we, we, we did what we are supposed to do. And, and it can feel like this false finish line that leads to complacency. So as we look at Nehemiah, as we see what's going on, they, they not only build this wall, but they see there's more to do. And I just want to be this, uh, have an encouragement to you that not only are we just in this place, which is a gift, but there's more for us to do. And so as Nehemiah finishes building the wall in chapter 6, we have a long list of names in chapter 7. By chapter 8, we see a new project beginning. And, and actually, in its reality, um, it's, it's not a new project. It's not brand new. Um, this is a project that has been going on for a while. What's happening is that, that Ezra, Nehemiah are resuming an old project that started all the way back in Ezra, the book of Ezra, which we spent the beginning of our, our year um, in that book. Now, like the building of the wall, this project, this, this renewed project is also a rebuilding project, though this project does not deal with infrastructure, doesn't deal with brick and mortar, doesn't deal with stones. This project, this rebuilding project is religious, cultural, and so, uh, social in its orientation. Ezra has a mission to rebuild a society, a godly society, um, to, to usher into, as they are resettling uh, the land of Judah, as they're resettling the city of Jerusalem, to usher in a new way of life after God's people had experienced life in pagan exile. And the champion of this project, the guy that's really putting everybody on his shoulders and pressing on, it goes by the name of Ezra. And, and for a long time, he was out of the spotlight here as Nehemiah's stories begin. We don't, we don't hear a lot about Ezra. Um, and then here at the midway section of Nehemiah's story, we are reintroduced uh, to Ezra. And, and he kind of becomes a central fixture uh, for the remainder of Nehemiah's chronicle here. We met Ezra back in, in Ezra chapter 7 after there was the first wave of, of Israelites who came back to the land. That the, it was the desolate land of Jerusalem, led by Zerubbabel and, and fathers of different households came back. Then coming in the second wave, after they had come back, built an altar, started building the temple, we see Ezra who comes back. He leads the second wave of refugees back into their homeland. And what we're told about Ezra is that he is a skilled scribe. This means that he, um, he understands the word of God. He's very familiar. Think of it in terms of a lawyer, right? A lawyer understands civil law. They're, they, usually lawyers have a specific focus of law that they study, that their focus is, their concentration. They're really understanding of it. They're, they're skilled at it. Nehemiah was like it, except for in terms of the Torah, of, of God's word given to his people through Moses. 
And so what Ezra has done, he's he studied the word of God. And so in doing so, he understands, he knew the history of, of the Israelite people. He knew from the very beginning through all the ups and downs and twists and turns, he, he understood what's been going on through the narrative of God's people. And we get to see this later on in chapter nine while there's this extensive um, uh, reworking or, or reminder of, of the ups and downs that God's taken his people through. Um, he shows us his understanding of history later on, but it also means that, that Ezra knew and understood the statutes and commands that God has given his people. So God doesn't just tell the story, but he tells his people how they ought to be in the story, how they ought to order their lives, how they ought to live, these the certain rules that are, are imposed upon them, not as a burden, but as a means to freedom. And this is the, the, um, the paradox of the, the law of the Lord. James talks about it being the law of liberty, this, this freedom. It's the way, it, it's the restriction that leads to flourishing the good life, this wide open field for us. God gives the law to free men so that they can live freely by rightly ordering their life. And so God has given his people the word. Ezra has become a student of the word. And, and God has gifted the people of God with a guy like Ezra who knows the word, who loves the word, who's skilled with the word. And one of the things that we're told in Ezra 7 is that, that God's good hand rested upon Ezra. There was something about his ministry that, that couldn't just be attributed to his, his um, whimsical or persuasive personality. It wasn't just that he was a good guy and fun to listen to. There was something supernatural about what God had done in Ezra's life that, that gave him a, a tenacity, that gave him the ability to prosper in his calling. And what God had put on Ezra's heart was to study the law of God or the law of Moses, to do it and to teach all of Israel to do the same. So to study the law, to do it, and then to teach others the same. Or in other words, you can say Ezra's mission is to build a word-centric society. People who orbit around the word of God, who study the word, who do the word, and then teach others to do the same. And as they do this, as they live in this sort of ecosystem of God's word, saturated by the word of God, they, they know, they love, they obey all of God's commands, God graciously leads to the flourishing of humanity. God allows this society to prosper as long as they are obedient and yielding to the word of God. Now, if, if building walls, if Nehemiah's task of building this massive wall was a, a giant undertaking, then Ezra's undertaking of developing what is what I would call a Christian society is even more so. It's massive. And, and the reason for this is because this kind of society, this, this word-centric society, isn't a natural thing. It doesn't pop up by accident. And the reason for this is because Genesis chapter 3, you go back to the law of Moses, tells us that all humanity is under the curse of sin. That sin has infected the hearts of man. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, that it's beyond a cure. So, so even if you and I could find a way to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, even if we could sort out the clutter in our hearts and our minds, we still couldn't put it together on our own. Our hearts are under a curse, and part of this curse gives us an anti-God disposition. 
This is why the Apostle Paul talks about being enemies of God, hostile in mind toward God. That, that natural man is incapable about, of being about the things that God is about, namely God himself. And with this wretched disposition comes with it a slew of, of rebellion and um, arrogance. Sin makes us proud. It says, you know, it, it, we see it with Adam and Eve early on in the garden. They, they, God gave them one command, do not eat from the, the, tree of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and the serpent comes and tempts them. And, and in this moment, they think, well, we, I guess God probably doesn't know what he's talking about. What does it hurt? Right? They, they think they know better you see this, this rebellion stir up because of their pride, because of their arrogance. They're not yielding to the word of the Lord. And what happens when you have individuals like that and you put a bunch of those individuals together, what happens is you create a society that follows suit, right? Likeness uh, begets likeness. And, and this is why we see in places like um, Psalm 2, why the nations rage, why they, they push against God and his ways. And as people push against God and his ways, as the nations rage, they destroy themselves. As we rebel against God's way to flourishing, we undermine our ability to flourish and prosper as we long to do, as God longs for us to experience. And through the ups and downs of the story of God's people. We've seen bright moments where they obey the word of the Lord. We've seen places where they receive it with gladness, that they're eager, that they're happy to go to the house of the Lord where the message is proclaimed. But we've also seen seasons where God's people have become like the rebelling nations. They've pushed against God. And that's kind of where the story of Ezra and Nehemiah begins. Um, 70 years before this moment, approximately 70 years, Israel had become just like the nations. A disdain for God's word, a, um, a lack of obedience, a lack of love for God's law. And what happened is it led to the destruction of Jerusalem. The whole city, from, from a social, economic, religious infrastructure perspective, everything about the city of Jerusalem fell apart, and the, the reason why is they diverged from the word of God. Now they stand in this new era. God has brought them back from exile. They've, they've, they've had their own kind of exodus story where they've been brought out of a pagan land. God's giving them a, a new start. They're rebuilding the ruins and as the ruins are being rebuilt and resettled, we, we have this, if we're just reading the story, we should be wondering, is anything gonna change? Like, is there any way that God's people can turn things around, that they can change the narrative, or is this just gonna be a repeat of what we saw 70 years ago? It's just a society that gets built up, like, like, a, uh, like the Tower of Babel, for the sake of, of man's own praise and, and, and his, you know, the, patting himself on his own back? Or is something going to be different about this, this thing? Well, because of the, the sinfulness of man, our, our disposition, because of the curse, 
unless God supernaturally intervenes, it's bound to repeat. Unless God shows up and does something that man cannot do for himself, namely to change the heart of men, to take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, to, to give it an inclination to trust in the word of God, to, to obey the word of God, to love the word of God. Unless God changes the hearts of men at the core, this is all going to be a rewind and replay. But thankfully what we see here is something positive. What I think is, is an episode of, of Israel, God's people being at their best. This is one of the bright moments in the story of God's people. And in this moment, we see um, God generate a spark, a spark that can lead to a wildfire of reformation and revival. God wants that. God, God wants to see his people flourish. So, some of us come in this morning and, and we think that God's distant from us and he's just sort of angry and he's kind of got his, his thumb down on us. God wants your best, but your best is found in him. God wants to see people flourish and thrive and prosper. I want that. I want to see us. You should want that. We should want, in fact, this is part of our, our mission at Sacred City Church, to make disciples, right, which is a kind of personal reformation. We want to see uh, churches planted to renew the city so that we would see this, this uh, renewal going on where the gospel, the word of God is impacting people who are both in the church right now and those who are not yet in the church, but we want to see them become part of God's people to see hearts and lives and cities and places renewed to see a more joyful city, to see a city that celebrates Christmas in all of its glory, to see a more just society that operates by laws that promote flourishing, to see a loving society, brotherly love and affection, to see society that's, that's marked by a, a firm um, allegiance to the truth. And because of this, we see a city that, that fl flourishes and prospers. And if you want this for your city, like I hope you do, we'll pay close attention to our passage today. We'll, we'll see what's going on here and, and pray, Lord, do it again. Let it be so here and now. Bring this reformation and revival in this place. And so that's really what I hope to accomplish this morning. So let's open the Bible and uh, take a look at chapter 8 verses one through eight. Start with verse one through five. Let me read this to you. And all the people gathered as one man, all, all of the refugees, all the people who came back from these pagan lands, they come back in and they gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Wrong water gate, the water gate. It's a real place. It's a real place in the city. Um, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood a bunch of guys. And Ezra opened up the book in the sight of all of the people. For he was above all the people and he opened it all. uh, And when he opened it, as he opened it, all the people stood. Now here we have a a big assembly. We've got an assembly of, of men women and kids, of all, anybody who can comprehend, anybody who can sit and listen and process, he says they're all gathered together. And this is sort of an, an all-day endeavor, um, from sunup till midday, approximately eight hours. And we see what they're doing, we're wondering, what are they doing? And the first thing that we ought to notice is what they're not doing. What they're not doing is, is gathering to, to do work. They're not gathering to make a dollar to do the ordinary day's work. They're not trading. They're not, it's not a marketplace. They're gathering for something sacred. There's been a, uh, back in Leviticus 23, there's a a special day that's been marked on the calendar. The first day of the seven month, which would have been about, in the Jewish calendar, September, October timeframe, so in, in the autumn, this day is marked as the Festival of Trumpets. Um, a day that trumpet blasts would, I mean, we get dug up here and blast. We get the trumpet blasts and people are proclaiming, you know, there, there's this loud noise, there's this, this disruption of the ordinary daily life and, and trumpet blasts and people congregate and in this day, there's, it's, it's a, a bonus Sabbath day. So every, every seventh day, there's a Sabbath, right? A day of rest that's been set aside. God rested on the seventh day. His people rest on the seventh day. But this day is a unique day because it's a bonus Sabbath day, a day where there's no rest, or there, there's no work, rather. There's no work, and it's rest. It's worship. Now, here we see the goodness of God, and not only does he give his people a Sabbath day once every seven days, but he even gives them bonus Sabbath days. And these Sabbath days are one of God's best gifts to his people. Uh, it's, it's the most important day of the week. It's a day to stop striving. It's a day to stop trying to prove your worth and instead to rest in what God has done for you. It's, it's a day to settle yourself in the grace of God and his sovereignty. It's this realization that even if I stop working, the world still spins because God holds all things together. It's a day where God's people come in like we did to, to, to be reminded of the glory of God, to confess our sins together, to be absolved, to be reminded of, of the blood of Christ that washes his people to be renewed in covenant, to to set our face to obedience and faithfulness, to worship God among the saints with the word and sacrament. Sabbath is a gift. It's a means of grace to cleanse us, to, to stabilize us, and to fortify us. Yet Christians often neglect the Sabbath to a great detriment, in fact. I mean, there are times where I'm out of town and I'm unable to go worship and, and to miss. One, I've got, you know, I like you guys, so I like being here. But to be, to miss 
an assembly, to miss being with the saints is a disorienting thing for me. It makes me feel like one of my legs is shorter than the other, and I'm just sort of wobbling my way through the week, right? That's, that's the stabilization of, of being with the saints on Sabbath day that God brings. But not only that, it, it reminds me of eternity, right? right it, gives me this, this, it gives me perspective. So, so even though the week's busyness and chaos seem overwhelming, it, it, it pulls me out of that to see things the way that God sees things. And then sends me right back in it with a new strength, with a new, with a new energy, a new zeal. See, when God's people neglect the Sabbath, our spiritual lives are compromised. And if your spiritual life is compromised, all of life becomes compromised. Now, I say this to invite you into this. Um, I, I want to invite you. And, and I know this seems kind of weird because mo- the people who are probably most guilty of this aren't here right now, so... I don't know, maybe the internet will find, them, find it this way to them somehow. Or you can be a reminder to them in this way. To lay hold of the blessings of Sabbath rest requires some effort. In fact, one of, the, one of the lines in Hebrews says, let us strive to enter into the rest, right? There's effort exerted to enter into rest. And so I, I just real on a real practical level, I've got three Ps for you to help you lay hold of the blessing of Sabbath. Number one, prioritize. Prioritize the Sabbath. I got a slide for this here. Prioritize. Number two is planning. Number three is prep. Prioritize, plan, and prep. To prioritize the Sabbath means that you treat the Sabbath as one of the most important things, if not the most important thing. Tithe is to money as a Sabbath is to time. Right, your tithe is meant to be the first fruits, the first check that you cut after God blesses you with revenue so you can live your life, ought to go. Got to be set apart toward God. Say, here, God, thank you. You've given me everything, boom. Tithe, first fruits, boom. The Sabbath is, is, is the tithe of your time. The first fruits, it's the first thing that we write on the calendar. That means everything else funnels in from there, whether it's work or extracurricular activities, dance or sports or even sleep, all of those things take second fiddle to the Sabbath. So you prioritize. Then you got a plan. You got a plan. So e- even if you're out of town, you should still Sabbath. You should still find a place. So when and where are you going to worship? Normal life? It's pretty easy. Hope you come here. Be with us. Here, we're right here every Sunday at 10 a.m. But not just worship on Sunday morning. How is your whole day going to be um, influenced in terms of a restful day, a day of rest unto the Lord? No ordinary work. What's it going to look like for you to rest? And not just be a vegetable on the couch, but to like find soul rest, find soul refreshment. What are you going to do for meals? How are you going to spend your family time? What does it look like to craft a a Sabbath day that actually lends itself to rest? It requires some planning. And last prep. I say say it because I've heard other people say it, but Sunday mornings begin on Saturday nights. That's true of me. I remember being a kid. We'd have stuff laid out the night before. Mom would lay stuff out, clothes on on the bed, put this on, get going. I still do that today. I laid out my clothes last night. But it's easy to get wrapped up in the busyness of getting out the door and your spirit, you come in, you're busy. You're, it took every, every ounce of effort to get here today. And now you're supposed to sit and rest. How are you going to do that? Well, prep. 
Sunday, night, Sunday mornings begin on Saturday night. Figure out what you're gonna do for food. Clear space and time. Do the heart work that needs to happen so that you can actually enjoy the gift that God gives you in the Sabbath. Now, all of that is for free today, um, but we see the same intentionality with Israel. But I feel like I had to say, it's so important for us. We're, we're, if we don't see the Sabbath, if we don't prioritize worship and the rest, the soul rest, we're gonna wither away. But the reason why I bring it up, the reason why I point, it, point you to this is because we see the same intentionality. We see the prioritization, the planning, the preparation that Israel, within Israel in this narrative. Because we see here in this moment, one is prioritizing the fact that all the people are gathered. They had a plan, where are we gonna meet? Well, they went to the water gate, which there's a slide here. It's a real place. There's a real place in the city. It's a gate where, where people would come in and out of. So they said, hey, and, and it's interesting because it's not the temple. It could have been the temple where they go to worship, where they go to do this, but it's in the city. They choose a place. And not just choosing a place, they've even prepared by building a stage for this purpose. Now, the purpose that they prepared the stage for, we're told, is so that they could hear the law of Moses read aloud. Now, this is where Ezra comes in. Ezra steps up on stage. He starts opening up the law of Moses that God gave to his people. Now, the law of Moses um, was a set document, the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, considered the law of Moses, and this, these five books of the Bible are considered foundational articles of faith for Jews and Christians. You cannot live the Christian life without paying some kind of mind to the Torah. It's essential. And this, this law of Moses was given to God's people at a very crucial time in their story. Um, it was given to God's people as God had brought them out of Egyptian slavery. They'd spent many years being oppressed by Pharaoh, um, building pyramids and doing stuff and just living a subhuman life. And God had brought them out of slavery. He said, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. But this whole wilderness time where they're walking around, these 40 years of walking through the wilderness, what God is doing, he gives them the law so that God could get the slavery out of his people. God is teaching them how to live as free men and women under God the King. And this law of Moses really tells us two primary things. It teaches, it teaches God's people about origins, like where you come from, identity, purpose, these, these foundational things that help situate you in the world to make sense of life. Super important. In fact, we're gonna spend some time in 2023 just talking about, spend several weeks in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, talking about origins, identity, purpose. And the second piece of this, of the law of Moses, is that it gives instructions. It actually teaches God's people how to live freely. And as individuals live freely, they, they, they um, honor the word of God. What happens is a society is built, at least ideally, a society is built in the promised land that is organized by God's law, which promotes flourishing. Now, this is very timely. It's an appropriate time for God's people to come back and say, hey, teach us the law of Moses all over again because what happened in the wilderness is basically kind of being repeated in a different way here as Jerusalem is being rebuilt. They're on the verge of a new life, building a new society in Jerusalem. And so Ezra climbs up on stage, up on this platform that they've built. He stands behind the pulpit and he opens up the law of Moses and he starts reading. And what I want to show you here got a few minutes left. I'm going to show you five 
crucial things, five really important things about the posture of God's people in relationship to the word of God. Now, when we look at these five important things, these five posture traits, what these are for us are, are evidences that God's grace is at work, that God has changed the hearts of his people and inclined them to want them, to, to obey them, to build their life on them. And because of this heart change has occurred, it primes God's people for reformation and revival. Now, we cannot generate reformation. We cannot generate revival in and of ourselves. We can commit ourselves to the path of pursuing those things. But, but, but it, I can't just put a sign out in the yard or in the lawn uh, and say, you know, this Sunday we're gonna have a revival. And the, I'm just, I've got it on my calendar that the Holy Spirit's gonna fall and it's gonna be incredible and just fill the church. Like, it doesn't work that way. But what we can do is we, as God's people, can set the sails for the Holy Spirit to blow into to bring about reformation and revival. And these, these characteristics, these postures that we see here are crucial to that. So first of all, the first posture that we see is humility. We see how, we see there's a very physical representation of humility that's taking place here in the fact that the word of God, as Ezra gets up, he's on a platform. And physically speaking, the word of God stands up above the people who stand below. This platform wasn't just so people could hear better or see better, right? I'm not up here on a stage so you can see my face. There's only two people in this room that think my face is cute. It's my wife and my mama, okay? That's not why I'm up on stage. It's so that they could acknowledge the word of God is above them. They are under the word of God. The word of God is authoritative. It is inerrant. It is the final arbiter on all matters. And so in this humility, this posture of humility, there is no room for the word of God being read and saying, yeah, but, or, well, things have changed, and so we need to think about this differently now. That's not what humility toward the word of God looks like. In fact, I would say that that's the opposite. That's pure arrogance, where we approach the word of God and we try to adapt and twist the word of God to fit us, to suit us and our desires. And when that happens, the church faces two enemies. There's, there's the enemy, there's, there's Satan who wants to destroy everything that God is about. Outside of the church, trying to, from the outside, trying to knock down the walls of the church. But there's also another enemy that church faces. An enemy that sort of breeds from the inside. And it, it's developed by, this enemy is developed when you, you get people who want to adapt and twist the word of God. They develop liberal theology, which Francis Schaeffer says is humanism in theological terms. So an anti-God worldview infiltrated the church, and from that there's, there's hostility, there's, there's rivalry, there's friction. So really the church is facing two enemies at one time. But humility places us in a secure place where we don't oppose God, because God opposes the proud, where we humble ourselves before God and God gives grace to the humble. We see this physically represented. The other way that we see humility, I would say, is in terms of honor. 
Um, proper etiquette is to stand upon uh, the entry of a distinguished person. Um, you you kind of know this. Like when, when you greet somebody, give them a handshake, it, it's a, if you're sitting, the polite thing to do is to get up and shake their hand and say, hey, it's nice to see you. It, it's, a, it's a gesture of honor. Kids in school rooms, I don't know if they do this anymore, but, but in the, kid, the school that our kids go to, when an adult enters into the classroom, all of the students stand up. They stop what they're doing and stand up as a gesture of honor. And we see the same thing happening here, the same gesture of honor and standing. As the word of God is beginning to be preached, the people of God stand up and reverently receive God's words, not man's words, not just Moses' words, though it's accredited as the law of Moses. What they see here are God's words, words that God has spoke to his people. So it's not just Moses speaking. It's not just Ezra speaking. What they're hearing is the creator and the king of the cosmos dawning his wisdom and his light upon his people. In fact, that's the reason why we stand when the word of God is read on Sunday mornings. We stand in honor of the reading of God's word. It expresses a high regard for God's word. So we see humility, we see honor, we see three H's just banging these you know, uh, alliterations out. It stops here, though. Four and five are not. The third one is hunger. As the people assemble, this is not a begrudging activity where they're like, oh, man, we got this festival we got to go to. I'm so tired of trumpets playing. It's not, nothing like that. It's not a begrudging activity. The people of God are excited to be there. They have a hunger. Their gut in it. They, they feel this emptiness that they just want to fill it up. And what we see here is that the people are the ones who actually want Ezra to come and to read to them the scriptures. They're the ones that told him to go bring the scroll and open it up for us because they are eager to hear. They want to, they want a feast to flourish. And so Ezra grabs a scroll, he starts reading and he does so for six hours. So if you think my sermons are long, perspective people. Now look at what verse three says here. And Ezra read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning till midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So not only is there a hunger for it, there's just an attentiveness. I can't even imagine six hours of sustained attentiveness, focus from the people. Now, why? Why is it that the, the people of God are so attentive? Why are they locked in to what's going on? It's because they understood what the psalmist said in Psalm, one, in Psalm 19. Let me flip there real quick for you. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here's why. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. The reason why they're locked in here is they have this understanding that there's nothing better than the word of God. No amount of wealth, no amount of treasure can surpass what God has given his people in his word. Nothing is sweeter 
Then what God discloses in his word, what he reveals. The people are hungry and they know they can be fed. And the only place where they can be fed is the word of God. But this wealth isn't transferred simply by exposure. Right? It's not like this background noise that, that sort of read over the people. What, what they're seeking for is this fourth piece is understanding. That they're, they're seeking understanding as the word of God is read. Now, we can see this in the fact that four times in eight verses, the word understanding is used. We talked about this a little bit last week, using literary context clues to help us understand the purpose of a text. We see it four times. There's a lot of repetition. So we see that the, the goal here is for the people of God to get the word of God into their bones, right? Just, just sort of like sunk in it, saturated in the word of God, not just in its, its sort of exposure, but in understanding. So understanding is a big piece here. They're striving to understand, and this happens in two fronts. We see first linguistically, um, there, there's some translating that's going on. We believe to be some translating as people have come back from pagan lands, from, from um, Babylon, from Persia, where, where they've learned different languages, been exposed to different cultures. They're, they're coming back to the original text. They're coming back uh, to, to God's word disclosed to them in the language of Hebrew. And there's some of them that, that can't, Maybe they, they know broken Hebrew, but there are people there in the room that are trying to help them, or I guess in the space, that are in there trying to help them translate for them so that they can linguistically understand what's being said. But the second front is, is cognitively. So not just an understanding of the words in their most basic sense, but, but a cognitive understanding of what the text means. And so you have Ezra and his contemporaries, his, his cohort that are up there on stage with him that are making their way through the people that are there helping people to reckon with the text. They're there to lay it out with clarity. They're, they're trying to make known the high and lofty things of God for simple men and women so that they would become wise. So in one sense, that these people would know that, that when they leave this place, when they leave the assembly, What's the next best thing for me to do? What, what is God calling me to do? What, what does it mean for my day-to-day -day life? And as people take this posture towards the word of God, we see, um, we see humility, honor, hunger, understanding. And the fifth one just sort of erupts out of this is worship. Verses five and six key us into this. It says, and Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. See, this is what happens. The word of God discloses to us the glory of God. See, as, as this message was read, they acknowledged Ezra blesses the Lord, the great God, the almighty God, the creator, the king, the sustainer. The word leads us to see God rightly. Now we see that, that Ezra blesses God and we're like, what do you mean? How, do, how does, how does a, a man like Ezra bless God? Um, I know how I can bless somebody by giving them something, right? That'd be a blessing. But how does Ezra bless God. 
Well, Ezra isn't adding to God. He's not, he's not adding to God in anything that God doesn't have already in himself. But what Ezra is doing is declaring what God is. He's acknowledging that God is blessed. He is the blessed one. He is the holy one. He is good. He is great. He is wise. And the scriptures help God's people see that rightly. That is what it means to bless God. When you see God highly, when you see God for who he is, we worship and we surrender in obedience. We ascribe to God the glory due his name. Not just at the temple, mind you, right? You'd think that this religious thing that's going on would be at the temple. That seems like a fitting place for it, but it's in the middle of the city, which tells us that worship is not just in the temple. It's not just the Sabbath day, but it's all of life, all of the city. And you see the people respond, amen and amen. Now, here, here's your permission. If you ever need permission to, to have this dynamic exchange with me here as I preach it, here it is. You can say amen. You can say more than that if you want to. But you see the people respond. It's not just this, this sort of rote, um, stagnant, frozen, chosen demeanor. Amen and amen. Let it be so. And they lift their hands in worship, they bow their face to the ground. Guys, this is Israel at their best. Hearts open to God, eager to receive his word, eager to do his word. Now let me ask you, is this your posture toward the word of God? Is there a sense of humility when you open up the word of God? that your life is subjected to this? Is there honor? Realizing that it's just not um, ink on a page, but the words of the king come to you. Is there a hunger? Like an eagerness to get to it every morning, every day, any chance that you get to study, to meditate on it even. Do you have this desire to seek understanding? Or, or we'd say to be a learner to actually grow in discipleship, understanding, not just cognitive, but like real life. How does this work itself out? And lastly, does it just erupt in worship? If it doesn't, perhaps that is why Reformation and revival tarries. Perhaps that's why um, our church and, and, and Big C Church is stagnant. We do ourselves a disservice, right? If, if we don't have this kind of posture towards the word of God, no wonder why we, we feel stagnant and stuck. No wonder why we lack joy and peace and hope. No wonder why it seems like the light of the church is dim. And if the light of the church is dim, then our city will suffer. See, God... I th I'm convinced one of the best ways that we can love our neighbor is to devour the word of God. One of the best ways you can love your neighbor is by devouring the word of God. That way, when you go to speak, it's not just your words, not just your opinion, but you can stand on the eternal word of God that doesn't return void. I want to invite us to set the sails of our hearts, 
to catch the wind of the Spirit so that we together, individually, communally, and and citywide could see reformation and revival unfold before us. And I think that the way that we do that, the way that, that this really just like the sparks launch into wildfire is by realizing that the word of God isn't just ink on a page. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. The word of God is a person. And we're told in, in John 1, I mean, this is, this is like the penultimate, uh, the ultimate Advent text, John chapter one, when John opens up his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Go down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of this only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word lives and breathes. The word put on flesh. The word died. The word It's been resurrected. The word rules and reigns right now. And Jesus, who is the word, opens up all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all of the blessings that are to be ours and leads us into the abundant life. Psalm 19 says, the law revives the soul, but it's Christ who resurrects the soul. It's Christ who brings dead things back to life. He's the one that replaces our hearts of stone with flesh. And there might be somebody in this room today that that maybe you're you're experiencing that that for the first time. Your inclination used to be to resist the word of God and now today God has shown himself himself to you. That you would gravitate towards him. And if that's the case, we're glad that you're here. We want to help you. We want to be around you and lead you into what it looks like to follow Christ in all of life. Jesus is reorienting us. He's changing our demeanor. And the more that we see Jesus, the more that we see the glory of the word in Christ the Son, the more this posture becomes ours, the more humility and honor and hunger and understanding and worship erupt from our souls. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness. You could have left us in the dark. You could have left us guessing, but you have have given us all that we need for life and godliness. And aside from you, your spirit, your son, one of the greatest gifts is your word, which is an extension of of your character. It shows us what you're like. So we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would make us into this kind of people, that we would be people that mimic Israel here at their finest, that that by setting the sails of our hearts, that we would be able to catch the wind of the spirit, Lord, that you would blow and bring personal and communal and citywide reformation and revival so that the, the, the nations would be blessed just as you told Abraham that through you, all of the nations would be blessed, Lord. Through this church, would our city be blessed as we tether ourselves to your word. For your glory, for our good, we pray this in Christ's name, amen.